All right, well, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab it and make your way to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, right where Angela was just reading. It's where we're going to be today. Uh, if this is your first time tuning into our live stream, we have been in the series, uh, in a series through the book of Ephesians for a couple of months now. Um, we were once doing it all together, but now we're doing it not together, but still simultaneously. And so this is where we're at this week in chapter 2, starting in verse 11. But while you're getting there, let me ask you a question. How do you remember things? Like when you have an assignment, when you have a, a homework assignment at school, when you have an appointment, when you have a to-do list, when you've got, you know, whatever it may be, like what is your go-to to try to remember those things? Because we all have to have one. Because we are absolutely prone to forgetfulness. We are prone to not being able to remember the things that we have before us. And so many people have lots of different ways. Back in the day, some people would tie a, finger, you know, tie a string around their finger. Uh, some people would write on their hand. I still do that one sometimes. Sometimes people will, you know, they would carry a day planner back in the day. And now today, a lot of people will put it in their phone. And if you're like me, you've got to put in as the maximum number of reminder messages that you can on your phone so that you won't forget. Because we are prone to forgetfulness. And so we all have to have a way to remember things. Because we don't. We are prone to forget them. Because we are forgetful people. And that's why Scripture is just full of commands for us to remember in fact, the Bible uses the word remember 232 times, and almost all of those are a command from God to His people to remember. Remember what He's done. Remember who He is. And the reason God calls us to remember so often is, is not just because we're forgetful people, but because remembrance of God's past actions empowers present living. I'll give you a second to write that down. Remembrance of God's past actions empowers present living. And, and that's true in a million different ways. From the way that we are to approach this COVID-19 outbreak, we're to remember God's past actions. We're to remember who He is. Because God's not going to suddenly just stop being who He's always been. He's not just going to suddenly stop being sovereign. He's not going to suddenly stop caring for His people. He's not going to suddenly stop being our refuge and our strength, the very present help in a time of trouble. He's not going to suddenly start forsaking His people. He is going to always and forever remain who He is. He's not going to stop. And so we remember who He is. We remember what He's already done in the past. How He has proved Himself, as the old hymn goes, or and or. Over and over and over and over and over and over. He has shown His faithfulness. And so we remember God's past action. But then that empowers our present living now. I mean, by remembering God's past action, this is not saying that like, we don't have to do anything. This is not a, you know, let go, let God. Like, we have things we are supposed to do. 
We should be social distancing. We should be washing our hands. We should be reducing our travel. We should be praying and asking God to end this pandemic. So there are things we have to do, okay? Like, it's not like, you know, we're, we're just supposed to sit back and do nothing and expect an Oompa Loompa riding a unicorn down a rainbow to fall into our lap holding a vaccine. That's not how it works. We have things that we have to do. But on the flip side, we also don't need to live like God doesn't exist. Like it's all on us. Because when we're doing that, what we're doing is we are, maybe not in name, but we are living functionally as an atheist. We're living like functional atheists when we think everything's riding on my shoulders and I'm the one who's got to figure everything out. Whether that's in this situation or any difficulty or temptation or trial we face, when we put it all on our shoulders, two things. One, we're living as a functional atheist. Two, that is crushing. That is crushing. Do not live as if God doesn't exist. He's there, and he's not absent from our lives, and he's not absent from our trials. He is still on his throne. And so it's important that we remember God's past actions so that our living today is empowered. As we know who he is, we've seen what he does. And Paul draws on this like exact truth, the remembrance of God's past action empowers our present living. He draws on this exact truth and applies it in a very specific way in Ephesians chapter 2. In a very specific way that has huge implications for you and I today. Because what's going on in the Ephesian church is that there is division and there is hostility in this one church over barriers that should take a back seat to the gospel. That should take a back seat to the oneness that God makes in his body. And they were struggling with the sub-Christian distinctions between Jew and Gentile. Barriers. Barriers that were ethnic. Barriers that were cultural. Barriers that were political. And Paul is coming in and saying, listen, in Christ, those barriers are gone. We are one. And we show a display of God's glory in our unity, in diversity. When we show, when we reflect the barriers that God has overcome between He and us vertically, and then that extends horizontally to those around us. And so the big idea of this text, if you did print off the sermon guide that's on Facebook, you can fill the blanks in. The big idea of this text, the main idea is this. The barriers that God destroys between others and us are ultimately the reflection of the barrier that God has destroyed between us and him. I'll say that again. The barriers that God destroys between others and us 
are ultimately the reflection of the barrier that he has destroyed between us and him. And so once again, in remembering God's past action, how he's reconciled us to himself vertically, that empowers our present living and reconciliation to one another horizontally. And really, that's how this text breaks down when you look at it. There's two kind of main sections. Section number one begins with the word remember. Remember what God has done. That's going to be number one in your notes. Remember what God has done. The barriers that he has destroyed between us and him. The separation there. And then number two, reflect what God has done. Reflect that by not allowing human barriers to divide believers. And so let me show this to you. Look at verse 11 with me. Therefore, remember, so there's the word, that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. This is a little dig that Paul's putting in at the Jews saying, hey, just because you did something with your hands doesn't mean you're actually good with God. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, that that the Gentiles, non-Israelites, had no knowledge of all that God had promised and intended. They didn't know the promise of the gospel, and thus they couldn't believe, and thus they had no hope without God in the world. Verse 13, though, but now, just like back in verses 1 through 10, you get to verse 4 and it's verse 4 and it says, but God being rich in mercy. All right. This is a giant conjunction right here. But now in Christ Jesus, notice that in Christ, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so again, what Paul's trying to do is he's trying to empower their present living in the situation that they're facing by reminding them of what God has already done. And so again, number one, remember then what God has done. Remember. And what God has done is he has drawn us near. He's pursued us. He's brought us peace. He's brought us union with himself. And he's calling us to remember that. To remember the lengths to which he went in order to do these things. To pursue us. To bring us peace with himself. Because whether Jew or Gentile, the reality is that verse 1 of chapter 2 is true. We were all dead in our sins and trespasses. Jew and Gentile. All of us. Dead in our sins and trespasses. Okay, we were far from God. And in Christ Jesus, we have been brought near. And so let me talk straight to the kids for just a second. When I was a kid, I, I don't know about you guys, but when I was a kid, I, I loved Sesame Street. 
Okay, now, probably didn't love it as much as my brother did. He would cry because he wanted to climb into the TV and go live there, but I did love it. And I learned a lot about life from it. I can still remember this to this day, Grover, I don't know if he's still on there, if you guys watch Grover, the furry blue guy, your furry pal Grover, right? Him teaching me about near and far. And so he would come right up in front of the screen and he'd say, near. And then he'd turn and he'd run way back to the back and he'd go, far. And then he'd run back up to the front and say, near. And then he'd run way back to the back and go, far. All right, you can Google that and see that two things. One, that's how he did it. Two, I'm a pretty good impersonator of Grover. But the whole point of, of this is that left on our own and left to ourselves because of our sin. Kids, we were further away from God than Grover could ever run. We were off the map in our distance, in our separation between a holy God and our sinful selves. That's the separation. But in Christ, we have been brought near. That, that He has done that. Like notice the tenses of the verse. We have been brought near. That's passive, not active on ourselves. Active on Christ. Passive on us. He has done this work. He has brought us near. We didn't come near. No, we are like sheep. You know, we, we are astray. And he, the shepherd has come after us. He's looked for us. He's brought us near. He's pursued us. And he's done this. Think about the cross at great cost to himself. At great cost to himself. See, the hub of Christianity that I think we so often forget sometimes is not do something for Jesus. It's that Jesus has done everything for us. That's the good news of the gospel. What makes us right with the Father, like God's acceptance of us, is on the basis of Christ's perfection, not our performance. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not about what we do. It's about what Jesus has done. He has brought us near. And so, friend, just as an aside, as we remember this truth that God's acceptance of us isn't about our performance, but it's about Christ's perfection. This means, and we need to remember, this means that God is not in love with some future version of yourself where you've got it going on. Right? I think we all, at least maybe maybe I'm just speaking for me, but I think all of us have this vision in our minds of us like 10 years from now, and we are amazing. Like, oh, God will love me then. Oh, yeah. I'll have it going on. I'll be so holy. I'll be so committed. Two things. One, that guy doesn't exist. Secondly, God doesn't love that guy. He loves you right now. If you are in Christ for the simple fact that you are in Christ. Because God's love for you isn't based on you. It's based on Christ and what he 
has done. See, on the cross, I mean, we're talking about how this has happened. It's happened by the blood of Christ. Because on the cross, what happened was an exchange took place. Jesus took on himself our sin and our brokenness. And he gave to us his righteousness. And so that's why we can now stand holy and blameless before the Father. Because we aren't standing there in our righteousness. We're standing there in the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that we had nothing to do with. He gave it to us. He transferred his righteousness to us. He did this. He brought us near. And so this is how we've been brought near. We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. But friends, we've also got to recognize that that's not only the way we have been saved, that's also the basis for our pursuit of overcoming barriers that exist between us and others, particularly in the church. And so even as we, number one, remember what God has done, we must now, number two, reflect what God has done. All right, we're to reflect it. We're to reflect the barriers that God has destroyed between us and Him, that separation that He overcame, We are to reflect that by destroying racist or other human-constructed barriers that exist between us and others. And listen, like Jesus, even when it's costly to us, to ourselves. But how? How how is this possible? How can this be done? Well, look back at the text with me, verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, next week we're going to mine out the details of like Jew, Gentile, the church, Old Covenant, New Covenant, the true Israel of the New Testament. We're going to get into all that, so fairly technical, fairly theological next week. But this week, what I want you to notice are the two words that are repeated. Each of them are repeated four times in that that passage. And those two words that are repeated four times each are peace and one. Peace and one. And dear friends, those two words are repeated because they are to reflect our horizontal relationships. Like in our vertical relationships, this is what we have. We now have 
peace with God through Christ. We need, now have union with Christ. We are in Christ. That's vertically. And now this is to extend horizontally. And we are to have peace with others and unity with others, particularly in the church. And so the world, listen, the world would divide humanity in a million different ways. Ethnically, nationally, politically, socioeconomically, generationally. But in Christ, all these things take a back seat to the unity that we have in the one new man. The one body through the cross. And so let me ask you, how do you define yourself? How do you define yourself? And somebody might begin with, you know, something like, well, I'm American by birth and Southern by the grace of God. Great. That's wonderful. Good for you. But being a Christian is more fundamental to your identity than is your family, your nationality, your ethnicity, your personality, your profession, or any other way this world defines identity. And so the unity that you share with Christians supersedes every other bond. Meaning, think about this, that you have more fundamentally and eternally important in common with a socialist Chinese believer addicted to BTS or some other K-pop group than you do with a non-believing American singing Amarillo by morning. And listen, I love that song. That is a good song. But the point is, our bond isn't cultural our bond is in christ barriers torn down unity peace in him built around him and so bringing this home to local churches if all we ever do is group people up based upon similarities and affinities Listen, that's what the world does. That's, that's common. That's easy. Anybody can build a group around shared similarities. Anybody can find unity and community in that. But what the gospel does and what makes the glory of Jesus seen greatly is that the gospel takes people that are far from each other and brings them near because Christ himself is our peace. Like the gospel destroys the idea of Hatfield and McCoys. That doesn't exist under the headship of Christ. That level of disunity. No, no. The gospel makes the Hatfield and McCoys one. This is what the gospel does. And in so doing, it shows a display of God's glory because this shouldn't, doesn't make sense to the world. When people who the world says shouldn't love one another, love one another, 
That makes the world sit up and take notice and say, whoa, what is it about these people? Why does that Jew so love that Gentile? Why, why does that black man from the governor's club so love that white man from the trailer park? Why does that redneck so love that Spanish-only speaking fellow from Honduras? Why does this student at one high school so love this student at another high school? Why does this Democrat inconvenience themselves so much for this Republican? Why does this millennial hipster spend so much time with this couple, this boomer couple in their 70s? What possibly could make that happen? The gospel. The gospel overcomes barriers. It tears them down. And so listen, if you have bitterness in your life, remember what Christ has done. If you're holding a grudge in your life, whether it's against some group or maybe it's within your own family, remember what Christ has done. He has torn down the separation between you and He. He has forgiven you of your sins. So who are you not to do the same? We are to reflect what Christ has done. And so friends, the unity and the peace that the gospel brings between believers of a gazillion different stripes should confound the world. It should not make sense to them when people would sacrifice and give of themselves and love people that the world would say they shouldn't. And again, that shows God to be great. And so friends, when we do that, when we live that way, when we forgive those, when Maybe they don't deserve it. When we release our grudges, when we find unity in Christ, we are reflecting reconciliation. We are reflecting what God does with us. Those far off being brought near. And remember how I said it was Jesus who does that? He's the one who accomplishes that? But also remember how I said Jesus does that and he did that at great cost to himself. Well, it's the same thing here. And so, for example, and before I give you the example, I need to explain one quick thing. Let you in on a secret about pastors, about me and about those of you who are watching about your own pastor. Pretty much every Sunday afternoon and every Monday morning, pastors live in a fantasy world. We sit and we fantasize. What would it be like to do any other job but this one? What would it be like if I could just do something else? And so for me, it always comes back to farming. Like that's what I want to do. It always comes back to that. My granddaddy was a cotton farmer. My uncle ran a dairy for years and years. 
my cousin's got a diversified portfolio where on the one hand he's all organic and you know all natural on on the one hand and on the other hand he's mass producing like 360,000 chickens every six weeks diversified portfolio smart man And so this afternoon and tomorrow morning, I'll probably be sitting around fantasizing about, man, what it would be like if I could just, you know, be a farmer. I'll be fantasizing about that again. But when it comes to thinking about finding our unity across barriers that would confound the world, the idea of a farmer is right on. Because while we don't create unity... God does that. We are to cultivate it. And so like a farmer tending his crops, we recognize that we're not the ones that gives life to the plant of our unity. But we are charged to cultivate it. We are charged like what we do matters tremendously to the health of our crop. And so it is with us. And so let me just challenge everyone who is watching or listening. In what ways are you cultivating relationships across barriers? In what ways are you cultivating relationships with people unlike yourself that center on Christ? They don't center on similarities of other things. They center on Christ. Like They would not exist except for Christ. In what ways are you cultivating those relationships? And listen, I'm not just talking ethnically. Because ethnic diversity isn't a reality in all parts of the world. Now, where it is, ethnic reality absolutely should be reflected in the church. Racism is a sin and has no place in the church of Jesus Christ. But the diversity we're talking about here is not just that. It's also diversity in differing education levels. Different socioeconomic levels. Different political views. Different ages. Different hobbies. Different interests. Different social skills, different abilities, both physical and intellectual. Yesterday was World Down Syndrome Day, 321, Trisome 21. How are you cultivating relationships across those barriers? How are you seeking to cultivate relationships with those perhaps of your own family where there's a grudge. Are you holding on to it? Friend, the gospel of Jesus Christ rips that down. And so don't resurrect the walls he's torn down and spit in his face. Reflect what he has torn down. And in so doing, show the power of the gospel. Because again, the barriers that God destroys between others and us are ultimately a reflection of the barriers that he destroyed between us and him.
And so the question we all have to answer is what are we reflecting? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you've shown us in Christ. That we were far off and you brought us near. Praise you for that, Lord. And now let that that remembrance of that past action empower us to live that presently. That we would bring near those that are far off from us. Whether that's something we've caused, we've done, we've made it happen. Or something that's just part of the fallen brokenness of humanity. But Lord, let us take it upon ourselves to be the one to go and bridge that gap just as Christ bridged that gap with us. Help us to cultivate relationships across the barriers that the world says should divide us. And in so doing, as we do that in Christ and show that commonality, who we have in Christ, our gospel unity supersedes every other identity we would try to or label we would have thrown on us. Help us to this end, Lord, and especially in this time. And Father, help us to live it out in this time, particularly in this church, as we care for one another. As people who, our only commonality is in Christ, but now we are calling people we don't know very well, maybe have never met, and we are just checking on them. How are you doing? How can I help you? Can I get groceries? Especially for our elderly and more vulnerable. And then, Father, help us to remember something we haven't even hit on. Verse 14. For Jesus himself is our peace. Not that he brings peace. But that he, I mean, he does do that. And he has done that. And he will do that when he comes again, second coming, and all things are made new. New heavens, new earth. Sin is over. Death is over. Tears are washed away. So he's brought peace. He will bring peace. But this verse tells us specifically he is peace. He is the prince of peace. And so, Father, in these moments, help us to trust in him. And may his peace that truly passes all understanding guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus for the praise of his glory. And let that peace pervade out of our lives. For blessed are the peacemakers. For they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. I pray that the Lord has blessed you. I pray that the Lord has challenged you. And I pray that you would respond with a heart of obedience. And so go now. And reflect what it is that Christ has done. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us now and always. You guys have a great week.